Hello, Field Guides listeners. Bill Michaelek here. I'm recording this short intro to let you know that for this episode, we decided to do something we don't usually do. Throughout it, you'll hear the sound of a camera shutter. And when you do, it's our way of letting you know that you can visit the notes page of this episode to see pictures and videos of what we're describing. As you're about to hear, this episode had us encountering some amazing insects, and we wanted you to be able to see them too, and not just hear about them. So on behalf of Steve and myself, we hope you enjoy listening to this one as much as we enjoyed recording it. Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill, and I'm here with Steve. Good afternoon, Steve. Good afternoon, Bill. What we're going to do today, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you the idea of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month, we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then take you out to a natural spot and share with you everything that we've learned. But today, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. So why don't we stop hiking for a second? Okay. And we need to introduce our guest because we have a third field guide with us here today, mm -hmm. Jason Dombrowski. Welcome, Jason. Hi, thanks for having me. Jason was kind enough to invite us out here to his property near... Ooh, what do you think that was? <laughs> oh, it's a person. <laughs> oh, that's somebody swimming in the nearby creek. <laughs> I was hoping it was a beaver or something. Oh. <laughs> All right, so we are in central New York, not too far from Ithaca, New York. We're in the Finger Lakes region, so mm -hmm. you can look that up. Yeah. But Jason, he contacted us and invited us to go mothing. So that's going to come a little bit later in today's episode. But for right now, Jason wanted to take us for a little walk around his property here, and then he's going to take us to his workplace. And I'm going to let Jason tell us what his job title is because it's long and I've already forgotten every detail. I don't want to get it wrong. <laughs> it's okay, I often forget it as well. Okay. Uh, so I manage the Cornell University Insect Collection and the Insect Diagnostic Lab. Yeah, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna do an interview here on Jason's property and we're gonna learn a little bit about Jason's background, what he does. Then he's gonna take us to give us a tour of the insect collection. But then tonight he's gonna be taking us out mothing and we're going to give an audio picture of <laughs> the moths that come to the sheet and the light and we'll describe more of what that's going to be all about later on. Well I think we'll have audio pictures but then also picture pictures because sometimes it's just nice to you can we'll, we'll put them on the website or whatever so everyone yeah, can see social them there. media all yeah. that stuff so people can see it. Just not while you're driving but <laughs> afterwards. So Jason why don't you give us uh, you know a little bit of your background like how did you end up making a career out of insects? Well, I grew up in the sticks of northern Ontario, just near Algonquin oh, Park. All right. There, there's more wildlife than people, so Great. you get outside <laughs> a lot. And I've got this, this sick obsession with trying to put a name on everything and trying to sort of paint a picture of what things are doing. And so my dad was a forester, so I learned my trees very early on, learned my birds. There weren't many of those. Vascular plants, not a lot of those. And then got stuck on moths, and I'm still learning them. So I just <laughs> haven't given that up. I haven't grown up. Nice, <laughs> nice. So where did where'd you do your undergrad work? So my undergrad was, was at the University of Guelph, which is just near Toronto. Oh. Uh, yeah. And I got my degree in biological sciences there. And then I went off to do grad work at the University of Alberta. And there I specifically worked on a group of little brown moths that all look the same called leaf roller moths. And those are the, wait, I have it here. He's cheating. No, I'm not. That's the Tortricidae, right? Correct. <laughs> and you have to sound that unsure yourself when you're saying it. Is that... <laughs> so it looks like a lot of your, from your publications, you did a lot of work with phylogeny, figuring out how moths fit together in families and, and orders. Do I have that right? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's a big interest of mine. And also, I'm quite interested in phonistics, like what species occur where. And so I imagine that 
going from that to getting the job at Cornell in charge of their insect collection was like a dream job, right? Yeah, and it's one I thought I had zero chance of getting. <laughs> I was going to say, who'd you have to kill to get that job? <laughs> well, and that's the thing. Like, I, I was sort of on the market for a bit trying to get jobs and, and failing and then applied here thinking, oh, they've got an inside person. And yeah. and I was so confident when I came in here because I thought, ah, I have nothing to lose. I'm not going to get this. <laughs> sure we call that it. sexy indifference, right? Yeah. They're wow. like, wow, this guy's so confident. He doesn't even care if he gets this job. <laughs> I was just relaxed. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this guy's playing hard to get. <laughs> <laughs> so how long have you been at Cornell? Just over 10 years now. So is it required whenever you meet somebody new that within like five minutes you have to mention that you're from Cornell? (laughs) (laughs) Um, No. I haven't heard this. Are they like the vegans of the academic world or something? There is that reputation. (laughs) How do you know someone's been to Cornell? Don't worry. They'll tell you within five minutes. I feel feel like maybe I've heard something similar about like NSF or or, no, no, sorry. That's a National Science Foundation. What was that school? National Science Foundation. No, the Forestry School. ESF. ESF. That's, yeah. I feel like I've maybe heard that, but also I haven't come across that in real life. So maybe, you know. (laughs) No, and I do have to admit, I don't think... In any of your communications with us, you ever once mentioned that you were from Cornell. You just contacted us and said, hey, let's go mothing. So Yeah, (laughs) myth busted. Yeah. (laughs) I guess. Well, I also was a student here, so that that probably affects it. Yeah. Mm. I think when I I saw that in your email, I'm like, okay, this guy's probably not a psycho. So, okay, we we can can do this. Wow. A bit of a jump. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) All right. Why don't we give the, the listeners an idea of where we're at now? Because... We showed up here, Steve and I, just a few minutes ago. We took a little dirt road to get here. And Jason started walking us into the woods and started talking about the property. And I said, now hold on, because I think this is good for for the listeners to hear. Mm -hmm. So you purchased this property. This is your personal property. Correct. You purchased about how long ago? Yeah, we've had it for about four years now. Okay. Um, So we got it just before the pandemic. And we lucked out on this. It's more than we'd normally be able to afford. How many acres? Uh, 25 acres. Wow. But the forest is, is really quite nice and intact, uh, minus the knotweed across the creek. Um, <laughs> and you said this is, hasn't been logged as far as you know. As far as you can tell, it's never been completely clear-cut. I've looked at old aerial photos, and just looking at the species composition here, it looks like it's been continuously forested for a long time. So we came through a little bit of a meadow yep. on the way here, so there is some grassland that you're restoring, right? Yeah, so that was a hayfield as far back as I can tell. Yeah. I think the earliest aerial photos are from the 30s, and that was a hayfield then even. Okay. But it had more of a wetland complex to it that's been modified. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we've been um, planting trees in some parts of it and letting some of it just go. Um, unfortunately, it's mostly non-native plants coming back right. in the field, but uh, there is some neat native stuff that's popping up. Nice. And for, <laughs> for anyone who's listening to this months or years after we release it, right now it's it's early July 2022, and you can hear some of the, the bird song around. So we I'm looking around at what we have here. We're standing under kind of a little hemlock grove. Mm-hmm. Nice understory in here, too. There's some openings. What else do we see here? Beach. Yep. There's a basswood right there. And mm-hmm. um, uh, even there's a cucumber magnolia just not far away from here. There's a few on the property. So while we're standing here, can you give us kind of jump topics a little bit, but I don't want to forget about it. Can you give people an idea of what your day-to-day work is like at the insect collection at Cornell? Day-to-day, the short answer is email. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as with anybody. Uh, that eats away um, so much time. <laughs> yeah. Realistically, it's it's never boring. It changes from day to day because with the diagnostic lab, we're getting samples in to get identified. So we get stuff from the general public where they've got some insect or mite of concern and you can't really do anything about it until you know what it is. So our job, 
I've got a lot of technicians that do the hard work and, you know, I take the credit for it. Um, <laughs> but we get all kinds of stuff that people are concerned about doing those IDs. We do the identifications for a lot of different state surveys through the Department of Agriculture and Markets. <laughs> so they're monitoring for various invasive species that are either in New York State and spreading or we expect will show up here someday. You know, trying to stem it before it gets too far. <laughs> And then we also work with the feds as well. So we currently are doing identifications for European cherry fruit fly, which is very common up in your neck of the woods. It's spread into the U.S. from the Niagara region of Ontario into Niagara County. Oh, okay. And it feeds on non-native honeysuckle berries, but also cherries. So there's oh. potential economic impact. There. Yeah. And so Could we somehow modify it so it just feeds on honeysuckle berries? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it... It's complicated because I didn't believe that it would have two completely different host plants because most fruit flies are really quite specific. But yeah, <laughs> sure enough, they'll eat wow. um, the non-native honeysuckle, which is everywhere. Up right. There, uh, and then other cherries as well. Does it feed on native honeysuckles too or just non-natives? Well, there's not a, not a lot of native honeysuckle That's true. There, so <laughs> I don't think we have that data. <laughs> okay. uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and yeah. then the other big one we're doing is box tree moth, which also is up in your neck of the woods. So that came in from Canada as well. I it's haven't an heard Asian of species. either of these. Have you heard of them? I don't know about oh, box okay. tree moth. Yeah, yeah, we got to do better with education. Then. Yeah. <laughs> um, so box tree moth uh, feeds on buxus box tree, which is not native here, but it's used a lot in landscaping in all kinds mm-hmm. of different contexts, and it really causes damage to it. It really causes mortality. So there's a lot of concern about that. Uh, it came in last fall into New York State, and it was found in certain select areas. And so there's various state and federal agencies monitoring for it, and then when they get potential candidates for it. They send it to us to identify and verify. So you're getting insects really from lots of different avenues, the public, uh, government agencies, and your job is just to tell them. Yep, basically we we slap a name on it when we can. Oh, that's Hmm. great. And and so we're we're specialized into, you know, those two species that I mentioned, but also other ones for New York State. And then the rest of my job is involved with research and in the insect collection. And so my specialty is tortricid moths that I mentioned, the leaf roller moths. Um, and so I'm working on documenting the diversity across the Americas for one particular subgroup of it called the Archipini. They're the ones I love. They're all very boring looking, but very cool in my heart. Um, and there's a lot of undescribed species in Central and South America that I'm working on describing. Now, does your position allow you to do much field work? It no? does, actually. I'm quite oh, lucky. Nice. This year, because the pandemic sort of killed off a lot of travel, uh, I've actually got an international trip every month through December. What? So it's it's a little daunting. Wow. It's awesome. I shouldn't complain about it. <laughs> but it's a lot of work planning and dealing with permits and things like so that. So what are some places you're going to? Well, I just got back from Denmark and Estonia. Wow, uh, wow that's cool. Before that, I was in Mexico, in, in Jalisco. Next trip I'm still working on. Permits are kind of problematic, but it might be Benin. Uh, in a Where's few that? Weeks. Uh, that's between Ghana and Nigeria and Togo. That Can area. we go wow. with you? That'd be amazing. Wow, that would be amazing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, because I was kind of thinking on the way here, we don't cover insects a lot because insects are not our specialty. Right. But it would be great to like tag it, along yeah. with someone who does have a specialty in the six. Because yeah. we have listeners who say, like, do more episodes focus on insects or do episodes right. focus on fungus yeah and then what i hear is plants <laughs> or, or sometimes i even hear plant genomes which has been a big struggle with me on how to get an episode out on plant genomes but that's what i do research on so yeah. but the thing yeah. is like as an entomologist that works on herbivorous insects i need to know plants as well right so i usually get to know the botanists of an area because they know where yeah. all the good stuff is right 
I mm-hmm. can tag on and find good <laughs> habitats. So well, man, it sounds like you have the dream job. Yeah, it, it sounds is good. a pretty sweet job. I really can't complain. <laughs> it's funny. It's a busy it, job, yeah. but uh, I say it's funny job. when I think of the other entomologist guy we know, Wayne Gall. He's also like a genius when it comes to plants. <laughs> Obviously, the you know it's a. Uh, it's like you get so much into one thing that it's like you end up learning so much uh, of well, everything else. Birds, plants. And know, the thing insects. is, like, with, with grad studies, as you probably know, you, you come in knowing almost nothing about everything. And you come out <laughs> knowing everything about almost nothing. <laughs> right, yeah, right, and right. And that's sort of what grad school did to me. Look, I was lucky before that. I worked for 10 years as a naturalist in Algonquin Park. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that really broadened my knowledge where I had to do mushroom walks and tree walks. And you had to learn things like birds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who does birds? Did, <laughs> did you know Dan Strickland? Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. yeah that was reading. my former boss. Wow. Yeah. I love reading his stuff. Yeah. That. No, he's an excellent writer. Yeah. <laughs> but Algonquin Park was such a special place in that you're amongst some of the best naturalists in Ontario. And we're all there feeding off each other and learning off each other and out, going out geeking. I, I still remember as a 16 year old kid going there, my first night there, you know, first time away from home. And after dinner, people were like, who wants to go dragonfly? I'm like, what? Whoa! Yeah! <laughs> Let's do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yeah, it's an amazing place with some amazing naturalists. So why don't we walk a little more? You can talk a little bit yeah. more about your property here. Yeah, well, I'll take you across a super sketchy footbridge. Okay. Oh, sounds Watch good. Your footing. It's going to be slippery. Don't right. trust the railings. Step okay. on the board. <laughs> As I slip into the board, water. That's what I mean. yeah. And here we've got some uh, ebony julian damselflies flying around here. There's a beautiful male. So for our listeners, Jason, tell them, how do you tell the difference between a damselfly and a dragonfly? So I should stop and say, whenever I'm giving a talk on entomology, I always have this caveat right off the start that everything I tell you will be slightly wrong (laughs) because there's so many exceptions when you're dealing with so many species. But with that caveat, damselflies typically are more slender, more gracile looking, have a more floppy flight, and they rest with their wings over their back. Whereas a dragonfly, more robust bodied, usually faster flying, and they usually rest with their wings flat out to their sides. This species in particular has, the males have an iridescent greenish body and jet black wings. um, And they'll display for females if they're around, showing how strong they can fly. (laughs) Now do they, over? what do they overwinter? What stage? So with all of our local dragonflies and damselflies, as far as I know, it's something underwater. So either as an egg or a nymph. Um, And (laughs) all of our species are aquatic with, with one weird asterisk. There's a dragonfly called the gray petal tail. It's this weird family called Petaluridae, uh, prehistoric looking family, almost extinct, but we have a species here in the Finger Lakes. And you can get in some of the gorges here. And it's this big, clumsy, giant dragonfly that likes to land on people for whatever reason oh. and startle them. And I think it might be threatened in the state. It's, it's really quite restricted. Mm. It, its nymphs live in what's called Maticolus habitats, where you get water seeping over rocks. Okay. And so you get these seepages down the gorge and the nymphs live in that sort of interface of water on rock and they eat fly larvae Whoa. in that habitat. So are That's the really nymphs cool. technically aquatic or no then? They're yeah, they're, they're technically aquatic with an asterisk. Like okay. <laughs> it is an aquatic habitat, but yeah. it, it does dry out and I don't know what they do when that happens. Mm-hmm. And what's that species again? The gray petal tail, okay. Tecoptrix yeah. thorii. Cool. All right, so let's move on a little more here. Yeah, so let's take you over here. So. Right now we're coming up to um, sort of what looks like an open wet meadow. It's actually an island where the creek braids uh, and it's actually the most botanically diverse part of the property. There's a lot of plants I only get in this wet area. Uh, You can see actually some Canada elderberry that's in bloom just off in the distance there. I think that's the only spot in the property where it is. But there's things like alder in there. There's lots of black ash which is on its way out. 
lots of hemlock that are kind of stunted. Probably some of the oldest trees are actually these stunted uh, trees growing out in this wet area. But yeah, very neat spot. Very hard to get into. It's, it's very mucky, uh, but really beautiful. Is the black ash on its way out because of change in the habitat or because of the borer? Emerald ash borer, yeah. Okay. It, yeah. We just got it a few years ago and we've walked by a few trees where you can see signs of it emerging. So it's probably been here a number of years. It's just, it takes, you know, five to 10 years for you to notice that it's right. really affecting things. We actually struggled to find specimens to, cause we, we worked with ash a little bit in our lab and we really struggled to find the four species we ended up finding. So it's, it's rough. Like, I feel like even if we were, even if we did it this summer instead of last summer, we might've been virtually out of luck because it, it was already so difficult last summer and it's just getting worse and worse. You were struggling to find the four species of ash, ash because that, they've been so decimated. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's sad. Yeah, here we have lots of black ash in this wet area and then white ash throughout. And I think there might be some green ash. I'm not convinced I can identify it. They're so. tough. <laughs> yeah. I was at Heart's Content in uh, Northwest PA. And on this trail, they had a bunch of signs marking off the trees, you know, sugar maple, red oak. And there was an ash tree that just said ash. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like they didn't even try. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's like oaks in the south, you know. Right. Why bother? Yeah. They're, they're just going to be some hybrid of something. Right. <laughs> Ash is close enough. So, what so I know we're I know we're heading back right now. But mm -hmm. is there anything we wanted to wrap up with? The thing I'd like to point out about here. So we're right, right at sort of a junction of two roads here. Uh, slightly open area with some really spindly ash that are probably on their way out from Amber Ash Borer, and a dead black walnut. But. I survey for moths all over this property and so I put traps in various places and what surprises me every time is that if you move a trap over 10 meters you get a completely different moth fauna Whoa. from the other spot so like you know I run a light uh, about 30 meters from here um, I get completely different things right where we're standing you know that never show up at that light like it's really amazing placement of where you put your lights is so important and it's been hammered into me year year after year when I when I try this so if you don't get something good, just move a few <laughs> yeah, exactly. dozen meters. And... And, and there's places where it looks just perfect and you just get absolutely nothing interesting. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, when you're selecting a place you want to run a light, you want to look for natural travel corridors. Mm -hmm. So, or travel corridors anyways. So like this roadway is great because things are moving through here. Forest edges are great. So I've got tree lines outside the field. Those are great. If you put the trap in the field, you get almost nothing. Hmm. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, that, about this though, because I'm guessing some, some listeners don't have an idea of when we talk about mothing putting up a light mm -hmm. what we're talking about is you put up a sheet and and lots of entomologists do this to see what's around put up a sheet at night put a light is it a certain kind of light that you put on it yeah there's various types of lights you can use and the key thing you've got to realize is that moths are sensitive to certain wavelengths okay and so the one that's in front of us over here is a mercury vapor light which has a very broad spectrum, everything mm. from well into the UV right through the visible light spectrum. And that's sort of the gold standard for mothing. <laughs> However, you can't just run it off a battery easily. So I've got this power to my house. Uh, when I travel with this, I've got to run it off my car while it's running. Otherwise, uh, I'll drain my car whoa. battery in 20 minutes. <laughs> right. So it's, you're not out in nature. You buy a parking lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you can also haul a generator with you, which also kind of ruins the nature experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The lights we're going to be using tonight are actually a pretty new innovation. Um, so they're LED lights. Now, the problem with LEDs is they have really narrow range of wavelengths. But there's a guy in Germany named Gunnar Brehm who studied moths to see what wavelengths they're sensitive to and designed this special light 
that hits those peaks that mods oh. are sensitive to. So is it a number of different LEDs with different peaks each yes. one? Yes. So there's UV, there's like a greenish one, a bluish one. Wow. And we're going to have to use eye protection for it. So I've got some of that because uh, it is pretty intense. But this one, because they're LEDs, they're pretty low energy, mm -hmm. we can power them off little cell phone chargers. Cool. And so I was wondering about that in your email. You're like, I got enough protective glasses for people. I'm like, we're not seeing like an eclipse or something. What's going on? Like, I, I was, you know, I, I wasn't going to ask him like, I'll find out. Like, I'm, I'm super curious about this. And I didn't even, it, then I kind of forgot about it until you just mentioned it. Now I'm like, that's ah, all coming together. I didn't yeah. ask because I just didn't want to look stupid. I just, I'll, <laughs> right. I'll just keep my mouth shut. And I, we'll I look it stupid out. every episode. So I feel like I'm getting used to it at this point. So. Well, the thing is like, so that they're very expensive. Like they're about 300 euros to buy. Whoa. Um, so they're okay. not, they're not for the beginner. But there are much cheaper options that do almost as well. So like uh, you can go to Walmart or some other cheap store and buy a typical party UV bulb. And that, that works quite well. Mm -hmm. Now, same thing goes with those. They're producing lots of UV light. And if it's a dark light, your eyes think it's dark. They can actually damage your eyes if you're out oh. too much. So you should also be wearing eye protection around those, but they're not as powerful as the ones we'll have tonight. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. And so like if you go to a rave or like, yeah. you know, cosmic bowling or whatever, that's damaging for your eyes. It okay. really is. Don't and, look at the light. And is, um, are just like sunglasses with UV protection well, uh, the glasses you're it? wearing are probably sufficient for like yeah. cosmic bowling. The, the, um, yeah, they, they come with UV protection or whatever it is. Steve's so. not wearing sunglasses. He's just wearing regular Oh, just regular glasses. glasses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the glasses I've got tonight, they say they block 99.9% .9 of UV mm -hmm. light. So I'm going to trust them at that. But the lights we're using, if you don't use glasses, you will know it's, it's, oh. it's rather dazzling. Okay. okay. So before I interrupted you, you said you were looking for natural corridors that they travel yeah. by. So what do you look for? So... Like for instance, on the edge of the field is a line of conifers. And mm -hmm. putting a trap or a light right on the edge of those conifers is great because things are moving back and forth along that. Okay. Things like moving along a cliff edge, a mm -hmm. roadway, anywhere there's sort of a- Break? A, yeah, kind of a break like that. Um, river edges work well, except that you're sometimes swamped with aquatic insects. Uh. Uh, so you'll get you know, a mayfly hatch or some fly hatch. And <laughs> it's covering you'll the get, sheet. I, I've well, so, so some of the traps I use actually are a bucket, so they capture the insects you look at the next morning. And I've had layers several inches deep of <laughs> flies or mayflies. Wow. Okay. <laughs> So w one question that I have is that I've talked with some ecologists before, maybe they work for the Army Corps of Engineers or something. So one of the ways that they identify certain types of land is by the plant life that's around. Is that something that you ever consider? Would you, let's say, would you avoid certain areas because of the plants around, or maybe would you be attracted to them because of the certain plants around? But I don't know if that would even matter. Absolutely. Plant diversity is key. The more diverse the plants, the more diverse the moths. That's, okay. There's a pretty good correlation there. Some plants are more important than others. Uh, and there's other indicators that you look for. So something like oak has lots of different herbivores that feeds on it. Not just moths, but all kinds of other insects. Right. So if you get an oak forest, it's going to be good. There's so many galls and oaks. Oh, yeah. Insects are just... Everything eats yeah. it. And it's such a well-protected plant, too. Yeah. You know, All these tannins in it, but mm. somehow it's great food. Um, <laughs> but if you had like a forest of Kentucky coffee tree, nothing eats Kentucky coffee tree. <laughs> it's a beautiful tree. It's native, but yeah. I don't know of anything that regularly eats that. What about Japanese knotweed? Uh, there are some general herbivores on it because yeah. there are some people at Cornell looking at what could potentially eat Japanese knotweed and they keep mm. sending me samples and it's like, no, nah, that's a common cutworm. Yeah, it's, it's not going <laughs> to. Yeah. They'll eat it, but they're not going to explode on it probably. You know? mm -hmm. But the other thing I look for whenever I'm traveling somewhere and I'm, I'm meeting up with a local mattress or whatever, because I, I always try to meet someone from the area that knows the best places to go and where it's safe to go at night in some parts of the country <laughs> and i always ask them all right where are the plants stunted where are they weak hmm. like, i want the gravel pits i want the barrens you know places where plants 
are investing all their energy just to survive and not fight off herbivores. Mm -hmm. Whereas you get to a healthy forest, things are doing well. Yeah, there's caterpillars here, there's moths here, but there's not the sheer diversity and especially sheer biomass that you get in these really poor soil areas. Hmm. Really? So sandy soils can be absolutely amazing uh, really? for whatever reason. Because um, the plants can't mount a defense? That's my best guess. So I, I can't say that for sure, but sure. yeah, where you see stressed plants, the moths do really well. Okay. So when I was out in Alberta, I did a lot of work in dune habitats. And what's neat is if you set up a transect and run traps from the dune to the open prairie, the open prairie gets almost nothing. But the <laughs> dunes, which had almost no vegetation, would get tons of moths. You know, wow. It was just amazing. And again, just you know, a matter of 10, 20 meters, you'd see a huge difference. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think what we should do is stop here, because we could probably just talk and talk and talk. But what we want to do is save some of this episode's time for hopefully some recording with the insect collection. Mm -hmm. but remember folks, we may not be able to do that if the noise doesn't allow it, but definitely this evening when we go out mothing. Yeah. All right, so Jason, thanks for this tour of your property. No problem. And uh, folks, we'll check in with you in just a moment. Mm -hmm. Hello listeners, Bill Michalek here again. Before we share our tour of the entomology lab, I wanted to jump in and let you know that besides the voices of Jason, Steve, and myself, you'll also be hearing two unfamiliar ones. While planning this episode, I mentioned to my wife Linda and my daughter Violet that Jason would be giving us a private tour of the lab, and they asked to come along. And am I glad they did. As you're about to hear, the Cornell Insect Collection is world class. And I should apologize now for all the times we repeatedly say, wow, in reaction to the insects and the stories that Jason shares with us. So now, on with the tour. Imagine, if you will, a hot July afternoon in central New York. We enter Comstock Hall at Cornell University, and Jason leads us through the doors of the lab. Yeah, let's hear um, yeah, so welcome to the Cornell University Insect Collection and my playground where I get to spend my time. My job here, as I mentioned earlier, is I manage this collection and also the Insect Diagnostic Lab. I think I'll start with the Insect Diagnostic Lab since we're right beside it. That is in this room over here. This is where people send in samples to get identified. So we've got various things that people have sent in. We get them in all kinds of creative containers. And we get everything from household insect pests to people just curious about insects in their backyard. But unfortunately, one of the most common things we get is no insects at all. We get a lot of random debris sent in. Um, <laughs> so what, people think it's an insect? In so the thing is, in the winter, uh, you get static charges that make things jump. Um, you also get Brownian motion when things get on water. Uh, and especially if your eyesight's not great, you might think it's a bug. And this is often actually <laughs> tied into something we call delusory infestation, where someone's convinced they've got something on or in them, Whoa. Uh, and there's nothing there. Now, in some cases, there actually is something, and we can diagnose that, and that, that's happy. It's the end of the story because we can tell them what to do about it. But this can be very difficult to deal with because someone has some sort of something bothering their skin or some real symptom. Mm -hmm. It manifests itself. It looks like a bug bite, and then they start looking for the bug causing it, and they send in all kinds of stuff. What's the weirdest thing you've ever gotten? <laughs> There's a long list of those. Uh, we had one just a few days ago. It wasn't actually submitted, but basically someone that found insects from outer space. Um, yeah, we deal with ufologists a fair bit. Nice. Um, yeah. Um, we get a lot of body bits. Unfortunately, people send in things like scab and bone and oh, okay. fecal matter. That, that's what you mean by body bits. Yeah, body <laughs> Not bits. insect bodies, people um, bodies. Wow. Where people are convinced that they're pulling worms out of them and they're not. Oh, gosh. Holy cow. 
Yeah, I don't know if this is appropriate for the podcast, but definitely that's, that's something we get a lot of in the winter when people get dry skin, dry itchy skin. It looks like a bug bite. You try to find something that's causing it. Yeah. And all kinds of stuff. So how do you respond to that? Do you like tell them what you think it is, or? Oh yeah, we we're very bluntly honest with what okay. people send us. This is poop. <laughs> <laughs> well, we request that they don't send that, but sometimes we get stuff anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, like, there's so many things that can cause skin irritation. Right. And if you scratch it in your sleep, it looks just like a bug bite. Like you can't identify mm-hmm. what did that by the bite. You know, it mm-hmm. could be you just scratching it. In fact, I can show you plenty of marks on my body that I know are not insect bites, but are just me running into brush or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you find someone that claims that, well, bed bug bites look like this and horsefly bites look like that, call BS on them. Because you, just, yeah. you can't identify things just by the bite with very rare exception. Okay. But yeah, so we get a lot of stuff from the general public, uh, including some really interesting things. We sometimes find new state records. Uh, for instance, Asian longhorn beetle you might have heard of. It's an invasive species that we're trying to keep under control. The first one ever detected in North America was in this lab. Uh, Someone saw things making holes in their trees in Brooklyn and was concerned about that, sent in the beetle to the diagnostic lab. This is before I got here. The diagnostician didn't recognize it, and then the person that managed the collection, my job used to be two people, they didn't recognize it, but they were a beetle expert. But luckily, we've got a really good collection of East Asian beetles, (laughs) was able to compare it and say, we probably don't want that here. So we do get all kinds of interesting things sent in. I also have some other samples here from state government, so from various surveys. So right now I'm holding what's called a sticky trap, and it is very sticky, and it's monitoring for, I think this one is for some kind of moth. I'd have to check, but uh, on here there is indeed a moth. Luckily that's not the target species. This is one called the Herald Scolioptrix libitrix. Uh, this is actually one that can co-inhabit caves with bats. They overwinter as adults, and for some reason, bats and them get along. And so we, I have a variety of technicians that help out with scanning these, looking for potential invasive species. And for some of them, it's routine identifications. For that one, I know what it is. It's easy. Other ones, we have to actually dissect them to identify them, or sometimes even do DNA. So it, it can be an involved process. And folks, just to give people a description of kind of where we are, how would you describe it? So it looks, there's long tables uh, along the walls, then there's containers and sheets under them. Those are all the samples. And then I was looking up above here at the bookshelf, yeah. all of these whole collection of books on identifying insects. There's the three volume set of the Manual of Neurotic Diptera. <laughs> yeah. Bestseller, right? Well, actually, if you find a dipterist these days that's, that's young, they would be jealous that we have hard copies of this because you can only get the PDF now. Oh, wow. Um, it is actually a really important book for identification. <laughs> What's that one? A whole book on flies. Marshall flies. I like the, um, what is it? The Australian Weevils, volume one, two, three, four, five. five. Yeah. A classic. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's one, actually, this one we call the coloring book. Hymenoptera of the world. So the ants, bees, and wasps. And it's called the coloring book because mm. it does mm-hmm. look like a very fancy coloring book. Right, yeah. It does. It's all black and white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of cartoony. I like diagrams. how the... Uh, the microwave here has big letters that say no food on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we do put some pretty nasty chemicals in there. Yeah, so yeah. there's a reason. That's actually used for, uh, so actually if you walk over there, we're looking at, what would you describe this as? What do you think this is? Huh. It looks like mouth parts. It's not, other end. 
Oh. Oh, okay. That, this is moth genitalia, males and females. Oh, okay. And so okay. for if you ever talk to an entomologist that does identifications, we'll talk your ear off about insect genitalia. Because mm -hmm. this is how you identify them. Okay. This is the gold standard. And so part of it is we'll dissect it out. They're often obviously very small. And then we have various chemicals that we put it in, including the microwave, uh, which is why we definitely don't put food in there. <laughs> Wow. Okay. The, so you got to know moth genitalia to identify your moth. Absolutely. Is that is that true with like dragonflies and damselflies too? Because I I think I remember when we were out with Wayne at some point, he had his hand lens. He was looking. That's what he was looking for. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Especially in the males, and there it's actually the structure of the claspers, which are grabbing onto the back of the neck of the female mm. for the most part. Some of them you look at the annuals, which are the primary genitalia at the base of the abdomen or secondary, and you look at microscopic structures of that. Okay. I learned dragonflies many years ago before any of these field guides came out that make it much easier to identify. And all I had was pictures of genitalia. Yeah. And so I didn't know what the whole dragonfly looked like until you actually see the dragonfly. Uh -huh. You just know they're naughty bits. That's, yeah. a, that's, that's all we knew. Interesting. Are, are there a lot of the um, like species epithets or does that reflect some of the genitalia at all? Or does it, or is there no correlation with that? Or yeah, some... so I can talk for hours about naming species because there's a lot of interesting stories. Okay. But quite often the genitalia is involved because with the, the tortricids I work on, the leaf blower mm. moths, there's really not a lot of external characters to go on. They all really mm -hmm. do kind of look the same, but the genitalia are different, so that yeah. you'll, you'll give them some descriptive name that matches up there, and sometimes I, it's quite comical. I love that. Maybe I should have gotten into entomology because <laughs> with plants and stuff, like I hate when I come across like a, I don't know, um, Richard Sonii or something. Like I, I'm like, that says nothing. You know, like it's, we're naming it for a person. I want to know something more about the, oh, we, the, the tree itself, you know. We yeah. certainly have that in entomology. In fact, yeah. there's this classic uh, American entomologist uh, named Kierfa. Uh, mm -hmm. He was, I think, a coal baron uh, way back in the early 1900s. And he worked on tortoise moths. Yeah. And he realized that, yeah, they do all look the same. And so he actually started giving them nonsense names that all rhyme. Oh, God. And so he described Banna, Canna, Dana, Fanna, oh, Gana, right. right to Zanna. Jeez. Bandana, Candana, you know, right to Zandana. <laughs> uh, Bomanana, Comanana, Domanana, right to Zomanana. And he did hundreds of these. And this irritated the Brits so much. <laughs> there was a guy named Edward Merrick who described more micro moths than anyone else uh -huh. that he actually re described all of Kierfot's names. And this took, you know, hundreds of hours. And right, right. Of course, the nonsense names are perfectly valid. You can describe things that right, way. Right, right. Uh, but yeah, entomologists are, are well known for uh, nonsense names. I think the most nightmare name that I've ever come across, and this is one of those ones that like, I, I read it in an um, etymology text, um, and I, I just still hope it's false because it's, I think it's a storm petrel, and the specific epithet is hesitata. And I'm like, what does that even mean? And, I, and the more I looked into it, uh, the, the thing that I found was it's actually that it's so difficult to identify because it's typically flying, you know, storm mm -hmm. petrels, they're known for like never landing or whatever. So it actually is just a reference of, you have to like hesitate before you try oh, to identify God. it or something. And I'm like, <laughs> come on, there has to be something more than that. But yeah. um, I, I, I'm hoping that's whatever source I found was just wrong about it. <laughs> um, but that may actually be it. So, yeah, I, I yeah. wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah. I, in fact, actually speaking of nightmares, um, I've actually described a species with a former student of mine, Ryan St. Lawrence, uh -huh. uh, Menevia torva messeri. And torva messer is Latin for Grim Reaper. Oh. And it's because it has this little scythe shaped mark on the wing. Oh, that's and cool. And part of the genitalia looks like a scythe as well. So it's like, 
That's, that's useful. That's yeah. really cool, yeah. though. Yeah. And actually, one of its congeners, uh, Menevia delphinus, we named because the phallus looked like a dolphin. Oh. Uh, so it's like, cool. That's what I like to hear. I like to, you know, it's descriptive. The term you just used, congener? Oh, con sorry. Congeneric means they're in the same genus. Okay. Yeah. All right, so that's the diagnostic lab. Yeah. So let's walk into the main collection. So the main part of the collection is in two different rooms. So we're in one room that has about two-thirds of the collection in it. And overall, the whole collection has around 7 million specimens in it. We're wow. one of the 20 biggest insect collections in the world. Uh, we have 200,000 species in here, which is about a fifth of the world's described insect species wow. from nearly every country of the world. And if you look right behind you, there's a map of where we've got specimens from. We've actually filled in a few of the countries recently. Uh, we did recently get some stuff from Afghanistan and Ukraine, uh, and I was just in Estonia recently, so I filled in that country. Cool. Oh, yeah. A um, few more to go. Testing my geography. All right. There? That's East. Estonia. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Then you got Lithuania and Latvia. Yeah, I'm Belarus. cheating because the map's labeled, but... Uh, no, okay. <laughs> Yemen, if anybody plans to go to vacation to Yemen. Grab some insects for you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do it legally, please. Uh-huh. But yeah, so we've got a good global collection. We go back to the 1870s. We started out as a collection primarily uh, supporting research into agricultural entomology, so documenting the insects of the Cayuga Lake area, and then expanded out from there very rapidly. And we sent entomologists around the world, back on steamships way back in the day when it was really an ordeal to travel, and it collected in all these exotic locations. And because of that, we have such a rich collection of material. And we also have material from places that are long gone. So <laughs> places like the Atlantic Coastal Rainforest in Brazil, 90% of that's been bulldozed. Uh, and we were collecting there before that happened. Wow. And so we have all these species that are probably long extinct and might be the only record of. And you know, like you hear on TV or on the radio that, you know, such and such scientists went to this remote mountaintop in the rainforest and found 10 new species of whatever. I can easily show you that here. I can show you hundreds of undescribed species. We have them here. We just don't have the entomologists to deal with them. Oh. So is that part of your job at all? Trying to identify those? Yeah, so species? I can show you a cabinet with undescribed species. Wow. So, Whoa. I mentioned the moths I work on all look the same. I'll let you judge that. <laughs> so, so we're opening a, a, what, seven foot tall cabinet here. Oh. And it's full of drawers. Right, and the drawers are they're, um, like labeled Venezuela, Peru, Uruguay. So yeah. these are Archipine tortricids, the group I work on. I think they're beautiful. But They're so small. Yeah. <laughs> so there's several, what, dozen boxes in here. Um, some of them have one insect pinned. Some of them have more than that. But all of them are, what, half an inch or They're around small. there, their body size. But, yeah, this is what you're looking at? This is Telling the difference at. in between. And then dissecting the genitalia, which is even smaller. Wow. Um, and the majority of these are undescribed. These are a brand new species. Then so, this is material I've borrowed from a variety of collections around the world. And so basically when you're doing what's called a revision, a taxonomic revision, what you want to do is get as much material as possible. So you're going to other collections, borrowing their material, you're traveling to other countries and getting fresh material and trying to basically get a comprehensive picture of what species are out there. Now I noticed that on all the insects you have pinned, there's tiny cards underneath. Yep. So that's just what, like where it was collected, when it was collected, identified, and all that information. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so uh, if I read one of these here, uh, Venezuela, uh, Rancho Grande, which is a very famous entomological collection locality, August 15th, 21st, 1967, wow. R.W. Pool, <laughs> 1100 meters. 
And then this is from the Smithsonian, so I borrowed that from that institution. What's the... Is that a pill case? That is a pill vial. So basically, when you have a specimen that breaks, that's one mm. way to deal with it. You can put it into a okay. little vial like that. Yeah, it's very nice and neat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you find it, it's not so super nice. Yeah, it's a yeah. whole bunch of undetermined specimens, and you pick out the ones you want. Right. But yeah, so basically, the bulk of this and this bottom half of the cabinet is undescribed species undescribed. that I'm working on. This is just the group I work on. So then there's probably, what, several hundred? Yeah. Right in here. It, it's daunting. <laughs> so, how long have you been here now? Uh, ten years. Ten, ten years. years. And I mean, could you ballpark how many of those undescribed specimens you've been able to figure out what they are? Any any idea? So, I think since I got here, I I with other collaborators, some of my students and whatnot, have described twenty, thirty-ish. Okay. So it's it's a slow process. Right. Now you can go through and just slap names on these and do a really sloppy job, and that is done, and there's a, a place for that, but. I prefer to go the revision route and do a more comprehensive job, and that sure. does take time. And like within the past, you know, decade or two decades, with all the the work that's been done in, in DNA and, and reconfiguring families and orders, like what does that do to you guys in terms of your organization? Does that make your life a living hell, or does oh, it? It's fantastic. It's okay. a wonderful. It's another tool that we can use. So, for instance, a lot of these are sexually dimorphic, so the males and females look different. And if you have one of one, one of the other. How do you know right. the species match up? But if you DNA barcode it, you can say, ah, oh, they match. Okay. You know, so you come up with your hypothesis. So, so recently, uh, a former student of mine, Kyle Austin, and I revised the Caribbean fauna of the Archipines. And it's a pretty small fauna, 30-some species, I think. And he and I described, I think, about 16 species in that paper. <laughs> but basically, we have a lot of mysteries like that, like which male matches with which female. But we did some DNA barcoding. We're able to match it. And also you can sort of build a hypothesis. So I mentioned the gold standard for determining if you've got a species or not is the genitalic structures. But some groups, it just doesn't work. There's really nothing there. And so you depend on DNA to help build your case that it's something different or that all these different looking things are actually the same thing. Now, can you do that work? I imagine you could do it right here to get the DNA. Uh, I actually outsource it. Uh, oh, okay. We don't do a whole lot of DNA in my lab, um, but we do send it off to, to get it done. Okay. Yeah. But we pull the legs here and send those off. Oh, so they, they don't really require too much material? The technology has gotten so good that they can actually get partial genomes from just single legs of specimens 100 years old. Wow. Which just blows me away. Because when I did this, I used to do this back in grad school, which was well, 12 years ago or so. And I had the hardest time getting the simplest genes out of like big clumps of fresh tissue. Yeah. And now they're getting you know real old material and getting you know good sequences of it. So <laughs> technology has improved. Also, they're probably more skilled than I was. There's a reason why I don't do much molecular work anymore. Mm -hmm. This is more fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get to go outside more. <laughs> Not like Steve. I don't go outside almost at all. <laughs> I actually don't do much lab work at all either. I usually just work with the data afterwards. So I work with whole genomes, so. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, so basically the way the collection's organized is there's three main ways we preserve insects. So for really tiny insects uh, and things like mites, we preserve them on glass microscope slides. We've all seen that before. Those are actually pretty easy to take care of. We've got a whole room here on the side and imaging equipment for that. The bulk of our collection is dried specimens, so the stuff we looked at. So this is basically where you take an insect and you put a pin through it, a special pin called an insect pin that's resistant to corrosion. And then sometimes with things like butterflies and moths, you spread the wings open. Other times you don't. Mm -hmm. Things like beetles, you don't. And then basically it's my job as the manager here to make sure that those things last. 
And if you take good care of them, they'll last for hundreds and hundreds of years. So the three ways to destroy an insect collection are UV light, so everything here is kept in the dark, everything is in a dark cabinet, things don't get left out for long periods of time. Uh, humidity, so we're in a climate control facility, so it's very dry in here, otherwise you get mold problems. But the big one is live insects. And for anybody that builds a insect collection at home, if you leave it somewhere, it will get destroyed. Uh, you get things like domestic beetles or carpet beetles that get in there and turn it into dust pretty quickly. Book lice will do that. Mice even can be problematic. <laughs> so everything in here, uh, first of all, before it comes in the collection, gets frozen for four days at minus 20 Fahrenheit to make sure we're not bringing live stuff in. Then it goes into an airtight drawer in an airtight cabinet and then we inspect everything. So I have students that go through here and inspect every cabinet at least once a year. Wow. And we've got 800 and some cabinets in here, so it, <laughs> it takes job. some time. <laughs> Not a super interesting job, but. Uh, it actually job. is a super interesting job, because you get to browse the collection. You get to yeah, see sure. all yeah. kinds of cool stuff. Well, why don't we do that, actually? Yeah. So let's yeah. look at fun. Uh, and also to save space, we have what's called a compactor, and this is probably gonna make for terrible audio. <laughs> No, I, I, I was looking at that, hoping we would see this happen. So right now you're cranking a, like a wheel, and it it's moving like, the entire cabinet. It looks like a wheel that's on the front of a safe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's moving the whole entire cabinet. Yeah. Sounds like a row of lockers. And yeah. so if you were inspecting this cabinet, you'd be pulling every single drawer out and saying, you know, some of these aren't so impressive. These are pretty tiny. Under a microscope, they're probably amazing. Mm -hmm. But you get to some really cool stuff. Here's something called a peanut-headed bug. Whoa. That does look like a peanut. That's amazing. <laughs> we actually had one of these submitted into the lab once from Argentina. Someone was really curious about it. So are these, is the peanut-headed bug, is that a moth? It's actually a true bug. So okay. kind of oh. related to things like aphids and plant bugs and whatnot. So hemipterans, right? Hemipter is correct. All right, because those eye spots, I mean, those look make it look like a moth. Yeah, yeah. you get eye spots in all kinds of different insects. There. Really? Yeah, so oh. it's, it's not just a moth. Yeah. And these are from Argentina, you said? Well, these are from Central and South America. Oh. So apparently as far south as Argentina, but uh, I've seen them in Costa Rica before. And they're pretty common at lights. Amazing. So folks, some of these, the, the bodies are a couple inches long and then the wings spread or what would you say, six inches, five, six inches? No, it's, cool. it's funny, when, when the wings are closed like this, it almost does remind me of a gigantic, um, what would it be, like leaf hopper or plant hopper? Which well, they the, are actually a type of plant hopper. I was gonna say, because uh. they, they are also true bugs as well, with the sucking mouth parts and... You claim you're not an entomologist. Yeah. You keep pulling well, I've, I've done a lot of entomology work, <laughs> but I'm not an entomologist. It was, uh, I just so happened to have done it. But it's overall a very showy group, so you get some other really comfortable ones. Like here's wow. the spotted lantern fly, which you've probably heard of. Oh yeah. One of our recent invasives. It's a beautiful insect. But some of the other species you get in Southeast Asia or Central and South America, you can see are also really quite colorful. Uh, except for this invasive one, our local plant hoppers are much less impressive. They're much, much smaller. <laughs> but still neat nonetheless. Are the spittle bugs in there? Close. Close. Yeah, okay. yeah. Different family. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a walk over this mm -hmm. way. Let's show you some big guys. The first time I saw one of these, I was in French Guiana, and I saw some kids playing with one with a stick. Oh and I, uh, before I put my binoculars up, I was like, oh, they're hurting a turtle. <laughs> no, it was a beetle. <laughs> so this beetle's called Megasoma, and that literally translated means big body. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can see why. So this beetle, um, I don't know, how big is that? That's okay, I mean, a small avocado? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Honestly, it looks like a, yeah. That's the good well, description for the size. You not want to find out But the bed. males have fighting horns, which they use to fight over females with, and the females do not. Um, but they are big, chunky beetles. 
and I saw you pointing at this fuzzy looking one. Yeah, it's almost crystally fuzzy. Yeah. It is. And so, do you know what's going on there? Have you ever had really old chocolate that sort of is yeah. whitish? It's the same Whoa. principle. That's called chocolate bloom and chocolate, and that's the fat crystallizing out. And with big insects like this, the fat will sometimes crystallize out like that. Oh wow. And sometimes the fat will actually affect the chemistry of the pin, and you get these green uh, tendrils that come out. What? It's absolutely bizarre. It looks like a fungus, but it's just it's a chemical reaction with the pin. Wow. Uh, but yeah, that's just a fat insect. So fat insects will do that. Wow. And so these would be good eating, probably. <laughs> so these are all from where did you say French so Guiana? So these, uh, well, these are from Central and South America. I've oh. seen them in French Guiana. If you look at the, the header, so, at, so each of these insects is in a tray, and at the head of the tray there's a piece of paper that says the species, and it also says where in the world it's from. So the yellow tells you it's neotropical, so Central South America. And if I pull out the next drawer, here are some species. Green is Southeast Asia, brown is Sub-Saharan Africa. This is uh, some different genera, but also similar scarab beetles, where the males again have great big fighting horns, and the females do not. It's so cool. But little moths are still cooler. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned before your favorite group of moths. Why is that your favorite group? What were they called? The tor The tortricity. Yeah. That's a good question. It's just, you sort of get shunted into it. Like, I mentioned when I was a kid, I was into moths. And, you know, I had limited resources. This is like early internet days uh, where I used to download moth pictures and store them on three and a half floppies. And I had like a <laughs> hundred or some so floppies with three moth pictures each on them <laughs> wow. um, back when computers couldn't store much. Right. Now there's so many resources out there, it's, it's, right. it's a whole lot easier. But back in the day, I was one of the few crazy ones that actually worked on micromoths. And so with moths, you can overall roughly divide them into micromoths and macromoths. And it's an artificial assemblage, but micromoths generally are smaller, macromoths generally are bigger. Macromoths are actually a nice distinct lineage. They are all related. Micromoths is everything else plus butterflies. But actually, speaking of that, I can show you as small as moths get. They can get very tiny. Oh, cool. Yeah. So here are... These are the smallest moths in the world. Holy... These are fun to spread. Wow. <laughs> you, honestly, I don't even know what I'm so looking at. So how would you describe that? <laughs> like, smaller than the smallest thing I've <laughs> okay, so I think this is a good way to, to say, like, I looked in there and I'm like, oh, these aren't that small. I'm not looking at the moth. I'm looking at the blocks of wood that the moths are on. <laughs> the moths are, are much smaller. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so there's a chance we'll see some of these tonight. Cool. Well, sort of see them, right? Uh, yeah. I'll get excited by them. Yeah. Um, so these are called the minute eye cap moths. They're called that because if you pop one in the microscope, the antenna is really thick at the base and forms a cap that pops over the eye arrest for whatever oh, reason. Wow. Most of these are leaf miners. So you guys have covered leaf miners before, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so they mine inside a single leaf. And they're actually much easier to identify generally by the leaf mine than by the adults. The adults are quite difficult to identify. So the larva will, will mine the leaf and then... Correct. And I think I've got some... Yeah, here's some actual leaf mines right mm -hmm. here. This is one that feeds on apple. This one's on cherry. So folks, in the, in the tray we're looking at now, there's actually some leaves would those have larvae in them, or you just keep them as a sample of the evidence of leaf mite? It's hard to say. This one has a stack of leaves, so I bet you've got both. Okay. And there's some twigs in that one, too. Yeah, and so I think, in this case, it's actually the eggs that are on the twigs, oh. which <laughs> are even smaller. Wow. Uh, I don't even know where to start looking for those. But. Right. So would whoever collected that, would they have been out in the field looking at that under a hand lens to see if the eggs are there, and then they brought that in, or...? 
That's my best guess. So at Cornell, we've had a long history of apple research, okay. and so we know apple insects really well. And this one is a leaf miner on apple. It doesn't cause economic injury, but it's there. So I bet there was someone that knew exactly where to look with a hand lens <laughs> for eggs that are probably a fraction of a millimeter in size. But yeah, these moths, the smallest species, the wingspan, I think the record is two millimeter wingspan. One of my fondest memories of grad school was sitting in the Ozarks with a beer in one hand and my spreading board in the other and my lap, by headlamp, spreading one of those. And it wow. turned out really nice, actually. I was really quite happy with it. So when you say spread, yeah. for anyone who might not know, you're just what? So when you spread a moth, so basically, first thing you put the pin through the thorax. The thorax is the middle section of the insect. And that's a box of muscles. And that's where the wings and legs are attached. Once you've got the pin through it, then you take the wings and move them up in position. It's in a, a sort of a grooved board. So if you picture a board with a little gap in it, that the body sits in, you move the wings up into position so that they're spread open. Uh, and then you put some sort of sheet down. So I, I use what's called glassine, which is really smooth paper. Uh, if you do any stamp collecting, those are glassine envelopes, but basically that material, pin it down to hold it in place and then let it dry in position. And as long as it stays dry, they stay nice and open like that. Okay. What do you use to spread them? So there's various techniques that you can um, do it, but basically I use really tiny pins to position things and just tease them into place. Uh, for I find bigger stuff much harder to spread because I do mostly micromoth spreading. So I do about 8,000 of these a year. Uh, the big guys I find are much, much harder. So something, let's get you the other extreme. So this is actually a micromoth that's really big. Uh, oh. so this one's called Zelotipia stasii, which is a type of ghost moth. I think this is a New Zealand species, if I remember correctly. And it's one of our biggest micromoths. Wow. And so it's about eight inches across yeah. from wingtip to wingtip. Steve will take a picture. A lot of these folks will post pictures online. And they also have these comically tiny heads. And tiny antenna. Yeah. Oh. yeah. They're just a weird group overall. We have some local species here that are not quite that big, but pretty big. Uh, there's a slight chance we'll see some tonight. They tend to come really early in the night. Um, so the ones that we could see, most likely Prediosis, this gold-spotted ghost moth, is, is a possible one for tonight. Uh, the larvae of those born the rhizomes of various ferns. <laughs> now, maybe I'll show you some big choice of. Great. Go from one extreme to the other. Yeah. Um, so this is always a crowd pleaser, the blue marcos. <gasps> wow. So this is a particular species called Morpho-Retinor. This is one I've seen also in French Guiana, but you get them through parts of Central and South America. And there's lots of different species of Morphos. The males are this brilliant iridescent blue. Females are sort of drabish, and the underside is camouflaged. So when they fold their wings up at rest, they do disappear. They're surprisingly hard to catch. They're very fast flying. You just have to be lucky and swing for it and try to get them that way but they can be very common. Now what's interesting about the blue here, you'll see how it goes from really dark to really bright blue. Mm -hmm. That's because this is a structural pigment and a structural pigment will not fade. So with the other insects that we saw, the colors on them are formed by various chemicals and if you hit them with UV light, they'll degrade over time and they'll turn to pure white, really boring looking insects. This will never degrade, no matter how much UV light you put on it. That's because the structure of the scales on the insect, we'll probably talk about scales tonight on moths, there's fine ridges on the scales that are set distance apart, set number of nanometers apart, 
that are just the right distance to amplify certain colors. So I forget what blue is. It's 420 or something like that, <laughs> nanometers apart. And so at some angles, it's really reflecting that blue light. In other angles, it's not. So it goes from really dark to really uh, light blue. In other things, like some of the beetles that are iridescent, that actually can change from gold to green to copper to Whoa. whatever. And that's through thin film interference. And that, uh, a good analogy for that is if you go to a gas station, you see a puddle. Yeah. You see those rainbowy colors. That's because you've got a layer of gasoline on top of water that varies in, in depth. And the, the depth will tell you which color is reflected. Now, I'm probably doing a terrible... Uh, <laughs> some physicists in the audience are probably, oh, no, it's not quite right. <laughs> That's how I understand it. But basically, both of those are structural pigments that keep their color no matter what. That's really cool. And that, folks, is where we'll end part one of this episode. Join us next month for part two, when we'll share the rest of our tour of the Cornell University Insect Collection, and then you'll get to hear our meetup with Jason later that evening, when he took us out into the woods to do some mothing. Steve and I have both been mothing with experts before, but neither of us were prepared for the sheer numbers, not to mention the diversity, of the insects Jason brought in for us. We hope you enjoy this first part, and we can't wait to share the rest with you. In the meantime, visit our website, thefieldguidespodcast.com, for the pictures and videos that go with this episode, as well as our social media feeds to see more images from our tour. Also, check out the Cornell Entomology Lab's website, cuic.entomology.cornell.edu, and their Instagram feed, Insects Cornell. And if you're going to be in the central New York region in October 2022, you'll want to go to their Insectapalooza celebration. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.